Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's time for another show dedicated to the world of keto. Check out ketoreset.com for details about my New York Times bestselling book and send your questions to info at ketoreset.com. You just said, should I just start? We hit record. <laughs> we see where it goes. Dr. Tommy Wood here in his fabulous office overlooking beautiful green Pacific Northwest, University of Washington. Tell me about your, uh, your recent career uh, happenings here. Yeah, there's been some interesting stuff going on. Um, last time I was on the show, uh, probably more than 50% of my work was with Nourish Balance Thrive, uh, which still exists and is still doing well. Uh, but for various reasons, I decided to focus more on academic research, which is what I do here. So I'm a re- research assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics. I research neonatal brain injury. Um, and at the same time, try, you know, there's a, another entity that I'm uh, working with trying to develop a startup company to basically bring some of the things that we know about health and wellness and the things that we can do to support our own health and try and make that applicable to a much more general audience. We know that probably more than 80, maybe more than 90% of the Western population has the beginnings of a metabolic disease. And we know um, most of the ways that we can fix that, but it's trying to get that information and helping people support healthy behaviors um, is really difficult, but that's something that we're trying to do. So those are the things that I'm doing at the moment, but sort of my main job uh, really for the time being is um, helping to run a lab here, looking at ways to treat babies with brain injury, but obviously still staying um, very well connected to all the, the health and wellness fields. Well, this this ambition to um, get this broad behavior change, uh, it occurs to me, we were talking about this before we hit record, uh, most people know pretty much what to do. Yeah. They're just not doing it. So there's where our disconnect is. We have the knowledge floating out there. For the most part, I think there's some people that don't have the knowledge or there's so much confusion and they're, they're locked into a uh, very strict diet that doesn't include animal foods and thinking that's the ultimate expression of health and their path to you know, longevity. So there's a little bit of trouble there with the knowledge, but the general idea that we you know, should go to sleep uh, before you know, hours of digital entertainment and not eat stuff that's coming in a, in a wrapper that's an edible food-like substance, how do we get to the, how do we make that jump where people care about their health and take action? Yeah, that's an you know, it's a serious problem. We know that these diseases, say, you know, Alzheimer's disease, they're calling it the disease that's going to bankrupt Medicare, Medicaid. Um, and, you know, as, you know, people people get sicker, younger. And it's just, it's just untenable. But we also know that most of those things are due to the modern environment. But like you say, um, health is not, it's not, in general, it's not a knowledge deficit. And there's plenty of papers, you know, research that shows that, you know, giving somebody more information is not enough to change their behavior. So when, mo- you know, a lot of people, you know, maybe people who listen, uh, listen to this show are people in the sort of like really into health, you know, health optimizers. Um, we're doing a, ho- a whole load of expensive testing, uh, genetics, nutrigenomics, maybe they're doing stool testing, epigenetics. Um, in reality, none of that is necessary for, for the average person t- t- to become dramatically healthier, you know, 80, 90% of, of, of where their, their optimal is. And that's what most people need, right? Um, so then it becomes about building healthy behaviors. How do you make it so that you have, um, 
you know, an optimal sleep environment or you're being exposed to sunlight during the day or you're eating, new, you know, a nutrient dense, um, you know, healthy, healthy diet um, or you, you know, building social interaction. Um, and those things, you know, there's, there's plenty of, again, research out there in terms of how we foster behavior change. Um, and we're hoping we can leverage some of those things um, to try and teach people to do that because, you know, some people want to do um, these things for their own health. They Maybe they're um, overweight or, you know, they have high blood pressure or they're worried about their risk of heart disease. Um, and, you know, all of these things uh, can be improved by putting some of these things in place. But we know it's difficult. A, because the evidence in you know in quotation marks is confusion confusing so so eliminating some of that is important but then it's also you know how do you build these things into what most you know most people have a very hectic stressful lifestyle like how do you start to build some of these things in so that's ultimately our goal uh well how do you i mean to me it seems like it's a problem of uh instant gratification decadence luxury consumerism versus you know, we don't have like like the rats in the lab where they get shocked if they eat a certain, one of the foods and then they, they don't get shocked. It's like we don't have that instant electrical shock when we reach for something or stay up past our bedtime. So without that, we're kind of just uh, indulgent every day or something. Yeah. So there's a number of different ways to to skin this cat, and I think what what is being missed in general in this sphere you know a lot of people are starting to accept that behavior changes is, is, is the big problem but you know they'll focus on one type of intervention but different people respond to different things so some people like you say some people respond to carrot some people respond to the stick um, some people need some kind of social support um, others might need somebody who turns up right when they're vulnerable and says hang on a second you know don't do that do this instead um, and that requires you to know uh, know the user um, and also have a you know the whole sort of available box of tricks that, that a health coach might use in real life but you know hopefully automate some of that process so that um, you can figure that you can figure this out yourself without having to spend money that a lot of people don't have to try and get some of this help. So, what about bashing uh, over your head with a baseball bat like the screaming uh, television celebrity trainer? That's not necessarily going to work for everybody. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, but some people, some people are motivated by that. And it, it reminds me of um, when I was living in central London and I was training training for a triathlon and. I went to this spinning class. It was it was it was Wednesday nights. It was incredibly popular. It's a book like several like several weeks in advance. And there was this six foot five, very lithe, lean German guy um, who was who was the spinning instructor. And he'd turn all the lights off and he'd play this incredibly ten like intense techno music. And he'd wander around and just like scream in your ear. And people they loved it. Like the, those people loved it. But like for a lot of people that is incredibly demotivating so you just need to have you need to have a you know a cheerleader style or, or um something that really supports you in in um your successes no matter how small um and then sort of uh helps you build on that and again doesn't punish you or, or make you feel uh ashamed or whatever if you if you fall off the wagon because everybody does that it's a learning process right maybe that's the first gateway is to say you know what you're okay how you are yeah. And figure out what works best for you. And if you're if you're just into yoga and you don't like jogging down the block, 
then don't do it. I mean, you know, figure out there's some compromises and things here. But then, you know, in the next breath, when you get talking to an individual and they say, well, you know, I I have a sweet tooth and I I can't live without my bread. And so now you're like pushing that, uh, you're lowering that bar down uh, and you do that seven more times with, I always, I also like my Netflix in the evening. I, I need to unwind after my stressful day. And all of a sudden you're setting yourself up with, you know, not, not the highest potential. Yeah. The, so then um, it becomes really important to uh, build on small successes, but also focus where you can focus. So um, of all the things that I think are going to be important, they include sleep and circadian rhythm, a diet, movement, social interaction, um, uh, stress management, and then maybe environmental exposures. So almost everybody has one of those things that they could begin to work on. So, you know, maybe your biggest problem is the food that you're eating, but hang on a second, could we, you know, get you to go for a walk after you have a meal, right? That's, and then as as soon as you start to see the benefits of that, feel the benefits of that, you have, you know, you're more motivated or then you feel you have more capacity to change other things that feel more difficult. So you can always come from a different direction and help people uh, build up where they can start. And then, then you start to, to work on bigger things as, as, and when, you know, they, they start to build some momentum. So what have we learned from the extreme edge of the, uh, the pursuit of optimal health and then, you know, the, the massive testing that uh, I was able to do through you guys and get all this information and then also what the elite athletes are doing, the people that are pushing that absolute envelope of biohacking and all that. Have we had some incredibly valuable insights that are a must-do for everybody? Uh, or should everybody get their blood tested at least once a year and then you know, have a starting point like that? Or wh- what can we do? Yeah, so I think uh, you know, all of those things uh, are important. If you're at you know the bleeding edge, either of performance, the bleeding edge the ble- of, of, of performance um, or of health optimization, that data, that that information, which you can then and making sure that it's information you can then act upon, you know, can be incredibly valuable, and that's going to get you the last you know five, ten, maybe twenty percent. Um, but what I noticed, having spent a lot of time in that arena, is that most people do not need that, um, and at the moment. You know, and again, I'm talking about the average person who probably has pre-diabetes, right? Just teaching them how to, you know, eat better, or helping them build habits to eat better, sleep better, move a bit more. You know, none of that requires fancy testing. None of it is expensive, um, and it just requires uh, support to make those to make those habit changes. So, so you know, both are relevant. Uh, but when you're trying to think about applying this stuff to a more general population, you you really see that the the sort of the the fancy testing that we've done that I do believe you benefited from is not something that that everybody needs or wants or or uh, can afford, um, and therefore you have to make sure you're getting the most out of you know you know the really most Im- impactful things, which are are those uh, you know six variables that we talked about earlier. Yeah, I think even referencing my time as an elite athlete where I had to take advantage of every opportunity and treatment method and professional support. Um, you know, being happy, being motivated, feeling like you're enjoying the journey was so much more important than uh, any biofeedback or things like that where if you weren't starting from that realm, and I'm, I'm thinking of this now because some of the questions that we absorb uh, you know, promote, promoting the, the books, the, the primal movement, they're, they're so uh, precise and detailed and nuanced that it's like, 
you shouldn't even bother asking or answering these questions unless you take seven steps back and say, um, you know, are, are you being a jerk to your wife these days <laughs> yeah. or, or whatever it is? Are you, yeah. are you connecting with your kids or is this just an obsession to like, you know, get out of uh, other, other matters of life that, that deserve to be addressed that are higher priority? Yeah, and that is, that's the real risk um, with uh, the, the quantified self movement or the health <laughs> the optimization. The self movement. Yeah, you know, and that you, um, you, you can get all this data, but A, a lot of the data isn't directly actionable or people are not acting upon it. And at the same time, um, you are probably sacrificing a lot of those other things which are more foundational and if you're doing all of those things right then yes this can give you the extra five to ten percent but if you're not then you're not going to see any benefit anyway yeah that's what i was saying like i don't even pay for the blood test until i feel like i'm deserving of going and testing my blood because i've been really eating well and working out well and things are going i mean or if i'm feeling like crap and i'm really trying hard and i'm trying to do the right thing and something feels off sure go get a test but i think uh, wow, you know, the, the triathlete example of purchasing the expensive bike to, to save a pound of weight when you're, you know, when you could just, when you could lose five pounds by eating slightly better. Then, right, yeah. right. Okay, man, you got to set some things straight for me too. All right. Here we are. Yeah. Um, this is now about a year and a half after your intervention with me uh-huh. where I was deep into this keto thing, feeling great. Appetite was regulated, just like we say is so fantastic, and I'm fasting extended period every day. Everything's going fine. Uh, doing these ambitious workouts, and they're, they're going okay, but then I'm you know, noticing that I'm kind of a drag ass once in a while, and I have crash and burn experiences, maybe 36, 48 hours after my sprint workout, and again, I'm over 50 years old trying to do this crazy stuff and break Guinness World Record, and so, <laughs> you know, these, this mix and match of the stress factors of, let's say, a high-intensity sprint workout for an older athlete, and the fasting and the restriction of car- extreme restriction of carbohydrates from even my historical pattern of eating primally uh, was possibly making me a little sluggish and you saw some of that on the results and you said dude go out there and eat more food period that was tommy's parting words and i experienced an immediate burst in uh, energy workout performance and especially workout recovery so i'm eating and eating eating i remember one of my passing comments or questions like so how do you know that you've optimized your caloric intake or that you've gone on one end to the other he goes well i guess if you started adding body fat that would be an indicator that you're well fed You're, you're not in that depletion phase anymore um, so then, yeah, a year and a half later, I stepped on the scale and I'm like, fatty popcorn boy, 172 pounds. Like, holy crap, is this thing right? I, I, I don't weigh myself maybe once a year for whatever reason, a physical or something. And I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> but then I'm like, oh yeah, I guess it is. Because I, I haven't really paid attention to this matter as a, a matter of priority in my life. But I had gained about eight pounds of body fat mm-hmm. over a period and it was of time. Bo- it was body fat. It wasn't oh, for sure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I even took a picture. I'll, I'll put it on Instagram someday to go, okay. And it wasn't, I'm, I'm still not in disaster zone. I'm still good metabolic profile, good athletic performance. But, you know, my, my insight was like, all right, so now I, now I know what it's like going out onto the other edge of, you know, unregulated evening popcorn festivities where the family's around and I'm really good at making popcorn drizzle in the lemon-flavored olive oil on top after a ton of butter and salt. And, you know, you start to get into celebration mode and then the celebration mode drifts into 
uh, habit and routine. I'm kind of asking you a multi-phase question because that's yeah. one of my concerns right there. Yeah. That I was very strict, very disciplined. I haven't eaten, uh, nothing touched my lips that's been shit food for 10 years. I just yeah. don't mm-hmm. care to go eat a ding-dong and I'm not going to. But, oh, popcorn's okay and so is, you know, the, the gourmet handmade ice cream in Seattle, of course, is okay. <laughs> and when I'm here, I'm hitting this stuff hard. But then as, if I was to go buy ice cream and put it in my freezer throughout daily life after my wonderful vacation to Seattle, then these things start to ooze out of, uh, you know, the intended maximum benefit. So, yeah. you know, I guess my, my question besides that the slippery slope is one question. And the other one would be, um, where is that balance point between striving for caloric efficiency, getting by on the least amount of calories in order to have more time fasting, more better autophagy, longevity prospects with caloric minimization versus maintaining my muscle mass fitness peak performance because I want to live a long time as well. Yeah. Tommy takes a deep breath. Ready, <laughs> everybody? The same, the this same. is why you paid for this podcast. <laughs> oh, it was free, but anyway. Get, you get what you pay for. Um, there's, so th- there's, there's a lot there to, to, to unpack. And, and, and you're right, the, there is this uh, slippery slope where, where you start to think, well, you know, I, I, need, uh, you know, I need more of this. So, you know, I need to get more calories in. One of the, if you're somebody who has spent a long periods of time fasting, carbohydrate restricting, one of the easiest ways to do that is to add back in carbohydrates, right? It, it makes um, maybe hunger increases slightly, caloric density increases, you, you can bring more of that in. Um, there's, uh, there is a point at which you lose or you have a reduced ability to, to uh, regulate uh, uh, calorie intake, and that's when the foods that you're eating have more than about one and a half um, calories per gram. And once you get above that, once you're eating foods that are more calorically dense than that, then you know you run the risk of of, of having to 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 sort of enforce self regulation because otherwise the brain should be able to figure figure this stuff out, right? You overeat for a period of time, you get less hungry for a period of time after that. And yet, yeah, of course, you can overcome that by saying, oh, I still need this. I still deserve this treat. But in general, um, if everything, you know, if you're under that like roughly one and a half uh, calorie per gram um, of your body, wait, one and a half no, calories so per gram of what? Of the food that you're eating. But doesn't everything have four calories, four calories, nine calories per no, gram? Yeah. Only if it's only if it's the so so if you imagine yes if you're eating dry pasta that has four calories per gram but once you cook it and there's now water in there there's the water content and the fiber content that are oh, going to make up that difference I see right okay. so so um, so lettuce has almost no calories per gram right even but if you dehydrated it of course you'll find some in there uh, dried fruit versus having a, yeah ex- exactly a watermelon or whatever yeah. yeah and so that's the difference between basically refined and, and whole foods is essentially you end up crossing that threshold one and a half one and a half is roughly so right. it's difficult to ascertain. Yeah, so what, you, I mean, you don't want to you don't want to calculate that, but right. by the time you've so you've got dry popped corn, which is already going to be closer to four, and then you start adding <laughs> olive oil on top, right? You're in that you're in that zone. Ice cream is certainly in that zone. So it, it's those kinds of foods that make it harder for your body to self regulate. Um, so if if you feel like you're struggling to regulate, then making sure that all the foods that you eat are, are at or below that threshold, and that's like whole sweet potatoes are, are much, you know, are going to be much closer to popcorn, say. So that's, 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 that's a way to, to handle some of that. Um, with, you know, this balance of, of caloric efficiency um, versus, say, maximal performance, 
I do think that uh, you know the idea of caloric restriction and caloric efficiency is slightly oversold, and I think we talk about we talked about that a little bit last time. And you know, when you look at say caloric restriction, you know, it does work across in terms of for longevity, it does work across multiple uh, multiple species, but it's not like a universal. Um, it doesn't provide a universal benefit. So only like half of rodent studies see benefit in terms of caloric restriction, um, and a lot of it does also come down to f- to food quality and um when you're looking at uh, larger species say uh, monkeys you know the quality of the food that they're feeding these guys is so terrible to start with that if you feed them less of it of course they're going to live longer you know it's like you feed them cheesecake and then you just feed them less cheesecake and of course the less cheesecake diet is going to be beneficial but if you were letting these guys eat what they would find out in the wild is there any benefit that caloric restriction is going to be is there any evidence that caloric restriction is going to be um beneficial and there isn't really any um and you have to remember that all these studies are done on animals who are so far um, removed from their natural environment in terms of the space they have to cover, in terms of how well they need their immune system to function. So there's um, uh, some really nice papers that discuss the fact that you know calorically restricting an animal makes its immune system work less well. But when you're an, when you're a lab rat, that doesn't matter because you have vets looking after you. You have all the, you know you have all the uh, pathogens removed from your environment. You know all these things happen that mean that there's no downside to that. Whereas um, when you're a human in the wild, being exposed to you know we're talking about the you know, the non-vaccinated kids on Vashon Island when you go over there, um, you know that's that's a potential risk. So there's and then if you go beyond that, you can even look at uh, the way that small animals uh, die and what they die of and the, their mortality curves. And then for those where the metabolic rate uh, per gram is about seven times what it is for humans, they're much more likely to benefit from something like caloric restriction compared to a human. So overall, I don't really necessarily see that much of a benefit there. Uh, but um, what we... What we do know is that obviously not overeating is going to be important, not gaining body fat. Once you're not doing that, restricting anymore, there's no, uh, to me, there's no evidence you're going to see um, additional benefit. But we do know that maintaining muscle mass and strength is incredibly important for longevity. So as long as you're, you know, you know, you reach the point where you start to gain weight and then you, and then you, then you hold back um, and you, you, you know, make sure your, your body weight's stable and you're still able to perform well and maintain your muscle mass, like, that's that's absolutely the you know the 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 golden spot like restricting or pushing any further than that because you think that you'll get more more autophagy or more longevity out of it there's not really any evidence to support that and i'd worry then that you start to lose muscle mass and lose strength and that's that's to me that's more important for your long-term health or i would say lose lose that uh intangible of recovery rate yeah you know my, my my change in muscle mass change in body composition is probably inconsequential relating to my life expectancy but um you know i, I didn't like it i preferred to i i dropped the eight pounds really quick thank you tommy from just cutting out the popcorn uh-huh. um sprinting and because i was uh you know, able to perform so well the previous year and a half, I could put more sprint workouts in yeah. uh, because my body was really, you know, trained at a higher level because I was getting on enough food. Uh, and then I think the, I guess I could drop in an aside, like I think the cold exposure when I jumped in the, um, the chest freezer for a few minutes every morning, yeah. I feel like that might've kickstarted some, some fat burning. Um, and I also feel like there's a, a counter to that, which is increased appetite. So yeah. what I did was like, I'd go in the cold plunge every morning and then I'd make a rule 
that I wouldn't eat any calories until noon. So it was maybe four hours where I, I would at times experience like an intense burst of hunger sometime after that cold plunge and it would last 15 or 20 minutes. I think that was ghrelin, you know, peaking in my stomach and making noise. And if I just wrote it out, I felt like I was in this, you know, enhanced fat burning state to get this, get this pack off my body for, it took three months and I'm back to, I, I dropped about eight pounds. I think it was all fat. And, um, you know, it feel, feels good like psychologically to feel like, hey, I'm, I'm back in an athletic realm here. Um, but you definitely want to want to optimize that going forward. But I, it sounds like we're in we have we have two different uh, uh, bags here. Where if you're carrying excess body fat or proclaim that you're carrying excess body fat, you have sort of different set of decision making parameters than someone who's uh, at an optimal body weight and just wants to be healthy, enjoy life, have yeah. some ice cream instead of pass, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think you're, for the, for the, um, the cold exposure, I think you're absolutely right. The, um, when you're caught, when your body temperature drops, your core body temperature drops, that is, um, a, that is generally hunger promoting. And it's one of the reasons why swimming, um, tends to be less, good if you look at the studies is less good for promoting fat loss is because your core temperature drops from being exposed to, to the water and then you are hungrier relative to the amount of exercise that you've done compared to say if you burn the same number of calories going for a jog or something like that so so that core temperature can def- can definitely be a tricky thing so it sounds like you you you've got a nice work around there yeah the swimmers uh, burn a ton of calories yeah. and because their body temperature isn't hot their appetite is is uh, ravenous. Whereas if you do something that heats yourself up, you're going to have a curbing of an appetite yeah. effect for a while anyway, right? Yeah. Okay. So if you're if you're struggling to reduce excess body fat, then I, I'm reminding uh, your great insight from the last show to communicate this carefully. Is first you get metabolically healthy. And then you try for this caloric restriction, re- reduction of carbohydrates generally. Mm-hmm. Can you like tee yeah. that up again? So the you know, we talked about last time how uh, the the drive to store body fat can can be pro- can be protective in a number of ways, and and, and but at some point it it, it backfires, um, and that's where you end up with more systemic insulin resistance. But up until that point, your body fat is your, is your, is your buffer. It, you know, it's, it's keeping you metabolically healthy, um, to up to, to an extent, but in order to, in order for your, your body to be happy to lose weight, it helps to be healthier. Um, and so you need to, at some point, figure out some of the drivers of that, um, of that body weight gain. And yes, of course, at, at some point you're probably in a caloric excess, but was that driven just by the fact that you're eating too much or was it driven by your poor sleep or by your stress um, or by, say, your environmental exposures? There's some people um, who think that if you're exposed to, say, a lot of uh, plasticizers or maybe um, some some heavy metals, other things that might be in your drinking water and your food, um, the, the best place to sequester that is in your body fat. And when people fast, fully fast, and like just water fast, you see a, a dramatic increase of these toxins in the blood because they're being released from the body fat. So you feel like crap. So yeah, so you can yeah. feel like, and it, you know, and while you're, you're losing weight, while you're losing yeah. weight, and so it actually um, very dramatic weight loss may actually be 
be quite bad for you. And that's one of the reasons why is because you end up releasing all this crap that was stored in your body fat, but you're not supporting the pathways that, that help you get rid of it. So trying to, you know, do some detective work in terms of what really are the the core issues for you that may have helped drive the weight gain that you have. And then reversing those first is probably going to allow you for much more sustained long-term fat loss. And how big are you on the environmental aspects? Because some of this stuff's freaking me out where people are talking about the EMFs and, you know, it's, it's destroying your humanity and uh, the plastic. So you got to not touch anything that has plastic with it. And then uh, I was talking to my, my cousin, Dr. Stephen, from the Los Alamos National Laboratory. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a rocket scientist. So he has shirts that say, yes, I really am a rocket scientist uh-huh. and all, all manner of, uh, you know, working that thread. Uh, but he said, these are, the, the emission is so minimal that he gave me permission to use my Apple ear, earbuds. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, every time I put them on, I feel guilty. Like, am I frying my brain right now? And, and I feel like there might not be a definitive answer yet because they're so new. So that's even more scary. Yeah. But then if a rocket scientist says, don't worry about it, times 100 with your whatever, your laptop and the, the, the wireless signal when you, when you log in at the apartment complex and there's 27 oh, yeah, other wireless yeah. people, so you're like, shit, that can't be good that all this stuff is touching my brain right now. Yeah. And I think you're right that, that we don't really know. What most... Um, what most physicists, engineers, and engineers talk about is whether there's a there's a thermal effect from the the EMFs or you know the radiation they're being being exposed to, and that certainly is not the case with most most Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and things like that. However, um, there is a huge amount of evidence to suggest that these things do have a biological effect. Um, the, and you know you can think about that either from like a cellular perspective, the effects that they might have on on um, different uh channel like channel like uh mineral channels electrolyte channels in the body um to the effects that you know the interacting effects between the electromagnetic fields that your cells produce in your mitochondria and we know that electromagnetic magnetic fields interact that's why when you put like you ever put like a magnet on your on your old cathode cathode ray tube tv when you were younger or something like that you see like the whole image warps we know that these fields interact so i think there's there's both evidence um um, and like mechanism to support a biological effect. The problem is that we have no idea the magnitude of it, right? Is it that these things cause one-tenth of one percent of all the issues that we're seeing in terms of metabolic health, or is it, you know, something truly meaningful? Um, we, we just, I, I just don't know yet. I, I know that they have an effect, but it could be so tiny compared to everything else, uh, but it might not be. So i so, but but there, are, you know, people are worried enough that in uh, countries in uh, Europe, so Sweden, I think, has banned all Wi-Fi in schools, um, or and a lot of countries are going in, in similar ways. We know that um, uh, having your cell phone in your pocket as a man decreases your sperm count, which then to me tells me is probably going to decrease testosterone levels as well. So, you know, high level exposure, you know, all day every day, I'm sure is having an effect. But you know, does that mean that? you should be worrying about it whilst not improving how you eat and how you sleep and, and how you move. Probably not. Um, I, I would still start there. Um, but you know, it's probably not negligible. So there's, uh, validated that cell phone in your pocket lowers sperm count and testosterone. Yeah. Not testosterone. It hasn't been looked at, but there are enough studies. Um, and I think that's what it's actually, you know, compared to like, um, brain cancer from cell phones, all that stuff. I think the one area which is less disputed is that cell phone in the pocket and, and sperm quality, uh, certainly decreased. Where do we put it then? 
give, well, it to your, give it to your girlfriend. <laughs> no. So, um, so I have it in my. So I mean, I ha- it, so say if if you're somebody who does have, and again, um, this is something that you can look at. So if you do have low testosterone or you have fertility issues, this is something that I take into account. If you don't. And like testosterone's good, you know, feeling good, libido's good, you don't have any fertility issues. Again, don't worry about it. Different people are going to be susceptible in different ways. But for me personally, it's probably the thing that's going to be the close like the closest to my body. So when I'm moving around, say I want to pick up pick you up from downstairs, my phone's in my pocket. As soon as I sit down, the phone comes out. That's that's just like control control it as much as you're able to easily control it, and then you know, I'd stop worrying about it after that. Same with drinking out of plastic. If yeah. you're thirsty and you're you're out on the road, you yeah. get a plastic bottle and down it. But you know, don't refill them seven times at home. Yeah, with the permeable, right? Yeah, and when you and when you're at home, so when I'm at home, I I filter all my water. I have a reverse osmosis filter, um, so that means that maybe eighty, ninety percent of my water is filtered. The other ten percent, you know, if I'm really thirsty, I'm not going to worry about it. If it has a bit, you know. That's fine. Therefore, you're sleeping better, not worrying about these things, yeah. and raising your overall score. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm very much in in favor of the approach of control the things that you're able to control or willing to control. Oh. Um, and if oh, excuse us, if you're not, we, allowed, have, a, we have an out there. Yeah, if yeah. I mean, if I, you're, I need if, my bread, Tommy. I need my if, my sugar fix. If you're not willing to control it, then maybe you don't care enough, and that's fine. Maybe you have other priorities. Again, that's fine. Like nobody's nobody's judging you if you want to eat a load of bread. That's not. I don't mind. That's fine. Uh, but you can you can make that decision for yourself. Uh, but control the things that you're able to or willing to control, and then beyond that, like don't worry about like literally worrying about it is just going to make it worse. So. Well, on that note, I, I feel like uh, you know I'm looking for sources of motivation and, and trying to study that in myself and other people, you know, um, and this fear of pain and suffering and demise twenty years from now or twenty five or, or ten if if we're idiots and don't do anything about it. Um, I want to find some a little bit of fear to light me up so I can continue to do these <laughs> workouts that maybe I don't feel like doing right now, or maybe I'd have. Uh, more unregulated caloric intake if I didn't have some notion that I want to have a long, healthy life. Yeah. And I feel like that might be a connection that's missing for people too. It's like you're lighting up these cigarettes or assorted drugs and pharmaceuticals that seem to be prevalent in the norm in today's society, and they're predictably going to lead to pain and suffering. So are you trying to ask about ways to, to get people to... Um, like, to 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 focus on long to focus on the long term rather than short the sort right. of like the short or saying term. Like, hey, everything in moderation. You can yeah. say that seven seventeen times a day and rationalize every single thing that you do to the extent that now you're sitting here with um, blood markers that are borderline or or whatever. Um, and and you know where do you get that where people can as collective society say hey, we're, we're the smartest, most affluent society in the history of humanity and also the fattest and uh, least healthy in many ways. Or, you know, here in the U.S. with the medical advancements, we're 37th in life expectancy. We're behind even Costa that Rica. High? I thought we were lower than that. We're behind Costa Rica, <laughs> who also kicked our butt in soccer. I mean, it's hey, like... So, I, I actually, I'll, um, maybe you don't know this story, but I was in Costa Rica in, uh, oh, in January... Yeah. I yeah, was bitten by yeah. a snake. He got snake I bit, bitten, literally. A, a bitten, yeah, bitten by a poisonous viper. I spent 11 days in a hospital bed in Costa Rica. 
And um, the cost, like Costa Rican healthcare system, is is great. It gives you just what you need. Um, it's a it's socialized healthcare. You know, everybody everybody gets the treatment that they need. And there's a lot to be said for that. There's no, it's not fancy. There's no bells and whistles. You know, of course, if you wanted something super technology advanced, you probably have to come to the US. But for the most benefit, for the most people, it really you know gets the job done, and they have better life expectancy than than people in the US who have you know arguably much better technology and spend a lot more on healthcare. Uh, so you got out of there in one piece, but it was yeah. an ordeal, man. Yeah, yeah, it was. I um, <clears throat> so yeah, got bit, got bitten by this this snake, and what were you doing? Uh, um, it's literally nothing particularly exciting. I was uh, walking along, uh, walking along a, um, a road. There's a, a stream that crosses the road, and the snake. It was it was at dusk, and. Um, we had been warned by the guy who I was walking with. So the guy who runs the retreat center, uh, my friend, Dr. Ben House, um, which is awesome. If anybody wants to go and like lift weights in the jungle, you know, I definitely recommend you go to the Flow Retreat I like Center. That name. It's incredible. Yeah. Lift weights in the jungle retreat center. <laughs> yeah. What was it called? It's Flow called Retreat Flow, Center. Flow Retreat That's center. a good name too. Yeah. Okay. Um and so yeah, I'd I'd been been there for a few days with the guys from from NBT and um, I'd actually had a lot of work to do. So I'd spent most of my time just in the retreat center and he was like, Hey, let's go for a walk. And we went out and got bitten by this snake. And then oh. we got, got, um, uh, he, you know, so him and I agreed, we were like, we don't know what kind of snake it is, but you know, we'd much rather be the silly gringos who get worried about it and go to the ER and they're like, Oh, you're fine. And send us away rather than it being like a bad snake. And then you, you, um, find out about it later. So, so we, we got in the car, um, and he's sort of driving down this mountain road to get down to the road. And, um, he's sort of communicating with his, um, his site manager, who's a local who then went back and found the snake and then found out it was a bad snake. It was a fair, a fair to lance. And then like the, I can feel the like truck picking up speed as like Ben tries to like get me to the ER faster. But, but actually when I got there, they, they weren't particularly worried. Um, I obviously, I hadn't gotten a big dose of venom, um, they they check by the amount that the site bleeds because they inject an anticoagulant. So if it bleeds a lot, they know it's bad. It wasn't bleeding very much, and then they um, they took some blood tests as well that look at your blood coagulation because the the real risk early on is that you have a hemorrhage, say into your brain and die if because your blood isn't clotting. Um, so I was fine from that standpoint. Um, but what actually happened the to me was that I got a really bad infection. So I needed multiple different types of antibiotics to get on top of my infection. So I had a I had a big I had an abscess inside my leg that they had to like cut open and drain. And I had like a big red swollen leg basically all the way up my right leg. Um, and it took, yeah, so I had, yeah, almost 11 days of antibiotics in the end uh, before before they got on top of that. Um, so that, that, was, that was the main problem. But like I said, I was really happy they had expertise and they knew what they were doing. And the, the hospital was clean, if not, you know, super modern. But yeah, I was, I was, very, I was very happy with how it all went. I was very lucky. So you got released. You were able to go home. Yeah. And then did you have more recovery time after? Yeah. So it took um, probably three to four weeks for the wound to heal. So so on like two, maybe two days before I left, the, the main doctor um, sort of basically just sliced open my leg with a scalpel and then just like squeezed all this pus out of it. Um, and then it, you, you can't like sew that back up. So it leaves an open wound and then you just have to like change the dressing. So we were changing, my wife was changing my dressings twice a day. Um, and it got looked at by some of the, um, so the, the first day I got back, I got looked back by some of the surgeons here in, um, in Seattle. They were super happy with it. So actually they just let us uh, look after the wound by ourselves. And then after that, it was just a case of 
slowly building it. So I had to spend a lot of time on my leg elevated. So slowly like walking again and then, you know, moving around a bit more and then, you know, over like a couple of months starting to like lift stuff in the gym again and just sort of build that, you know, build all that strength back up. I lost 20 pounds. <clears throat> um, so I had to gain Speaking all that weight back. losing and gaining weight. Yeah. So that would be like 18 pounds of muscle. Or yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, I was... I was, it was pretty much, uh, yeah, probably close. It was probably, you know, perfectly in proportion with my body composition. So, um, yeah, something like that. And, uh, it took, it took a while to, to, to build that back up, but that was all right. I did, I did the unregulated eating for two or three weeks and most of it came back pretty quickly. And what was it like getting back into the gym or starting from, did you have an extreme attrition in your baseline fitness standard? Um, no, it, it was okay actually. Um, and I, I even though I haven't gone as as heavy as maybe I was I was lifting this time last year, you know I know that I'm pretty I know that I'm pretty close, um, and yeah. So after like I I mean I obviously because of the leg I, I went in and did upper body stuff to begin with, and I maybe do like three chin ups and five dips, and I'd be done, and then I'd like go and sit down. But like you know you just sort of slowly build it up. But actually once once the once my leg was fully healed it, it, it the like the 80 percent that i'd lost came back pretty quickly um what about the um i forget what i was gonna say oh we gotta edit it now the um i forgot i was gonna ask you something about the training part um Okay. Uh, no, it was important too. It's like in terms, of, was it was like getting strength back or muscle back, or like how I did it. Or I totally blanked, but okay. Um, I should ask a follow up question of some kind, and we can always come back to it. Yeah. Okay. Um, Okay, another thing on my well, list. Well, we were, to, we, were, we, were, we, were, um, we went down into Costa Rica because we were talking about life expectancy in the US. Oh, right? yeah. So, I mean, going, going back to that, in reality, everybody is, a, you know, everybody is an, an adult. They can and should do whatever it is that they want to do. Um, obviously, giving people the, the tools for those who do want to try and change things, improve their long-term um, you know, health and, and lifespan, um, is, is important. And, but, but, but you're right that the big problem becomes, you know, instant gratification versus long-term, long-term benefit. And most things, so like the people who are super interested in, in longevity, um, who may be taking various supplements, maybe they're taking rapamycin, metformin, you know, any of those things, how are they going to know whether it worked or not? Right. What's the <laughs> right. feedback loop? You have right. no, you have no idea. Um, and are they even going to take it now, now they've started taking it. Are they going to take it every day for the rest of their lives? Yeah. Because what happens is people will take a supplement or a, or a drug, you know, particularly if they're doing it for a, a health benefit rather than to treat a disease. You know, after like a month or six months, they'll get bored. They'll stop taking it. Um, and that's incredible. You know, everybody has a, a drawer full of supplements that they don't take anymore, right? You, you're going to take this thing because it was going to make you healthier. It's going to make you live longer. You don't take it anymore. Um, and so that's, that's the big problem, I think, in... Uh, sort of the longevity and wellness space 
as as people call it at the moment is that most of those things do not become something that you're going to do you're going to do long term it's a shiny new thing that you try for a while you never know if it actually gave you any benefit so trying to um, build in some feedback loops so that's something that we've tried to do with the blood chemistry calculator and and other people are doing you know can you look at your blood tests and they uh, assess how old your blood looks looks you can do the same thing with methylation epigenetics maybe with telomeres i'm not a big telomere fan but you know possibly oh you're not a big fan you said no um largely because the the if you're measuring telomeres in, in your blood, which is usually what we're doing, you're measuring, te- measuring telomeres in white blood cells, which are the, the cells in your blood that have DNA for you to measure the telomeres of. But different white blood cells, just at baseline, have different telomere lengths. So depending on the proportion and number of different white blood cells that you have, and those have a circadian rhythm, those are affected by a whole host of other things. So your telomeres may get shorter or longer. And actually, that's just because there were a different popula- population of cells that you measured uh, the, the second time you measured it. Um, so it's just it's just far too variable um, and not that not that accurate for my liking. Um, maybe that maybe that will improve in the future. I'm sure it will. But right um, now, the people are touting this. You can go Google the word telomeres, telomeres, and it says uh, these are the caps on the end of your cells. And the longer they are, the, the longer you're going to live. And the shorter they are, that means you've been partying like a rock star, and you're going to have. And so, yeah, to me, it doesn't doesn't seem like anything's that black and white. No, and. And, and, and in reality, so say that your your telomeres are shorter than are ex, than than expected. How do you know what to do about that? The things that you need to do about that are all the things that we've already talked about. So you know you need to do that anyway. If you're not doing it, you didn't need a three hundred dollar test to tell you that. So so that that's the the big problem with a lot of these tests is that and now so um, there's. Um, there's some epigenetics uh, testing, methylation testing. There's um, uh, a, a, something called the glycan age, where you basically look at um, the the glycosylation. So, so HbA1c is a glycated hemoglobin. It's you know the um, sugar molecule, sugar moieties are attached to your to your hemoglobin. That's measured, um, but you can do that for all kinds of proteins, and you can do that in a blood test. It sort of gives you this wide score in terms of how much your proteins are are coated with with these um, glyc glycation products but the thing is that it doesn't tell you anything about what you should do about it and the in reality if you are doing these things to try and improve your long-term health you probably already know what it is that you are def- deficient in like like we talked about it's not a knowledge deficit you know what you need to do so having these tests doesn't necessarily help you because it gives you no indication of what of what you should do so well, in the, general just change yeah. the things that you know you need to change uh the hba1c is the amount of glucose that's been circulating around more is worse and a higher score is uh, seen as worse. So wouldn't it be cut carbs if your HbA1c is over six or whatever the danger? Yeah. So for HbA1c, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a good example. Um, there are some confounders of that. So the HbA1c within an individual person tracking your HbA1c over time is definitely beneficial. Using your HbA1c to compare yourself to other people doesn't work very well because each person for a different average glucose level will have different amounts of HbA1c. So it's not very it doesn't allow you to compare to others but you can track yours over time. Oh right, uh, your 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 um your cells might live or die in a different lifespan and so you'll have a a higher number. Yeah. Could you cross reference it to a healthy glucose level and say maybe I'm not so concerned as as I might yeah. be otherwise? So so when when people report an HbA1c on, on a lab test often it will tell you what your predicted average blood glucose level is but in general that's it's just wrong 
It's not true. Like you, besides that, it's nice to see on your lab report. Besides, I remember yeah, seeing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because um, if if you so so besides about, being wrong, besides being it's wrong, there's like a very fifth, handy. It has a nice, beautiful graphic presentation. Yeah. So so like if it says that your average blood glucose is um, is say a hundred. Uh, 100 milligrams a deciliter. In reality, it's probably anywhere between 80 and 120. And that's a big difference. That's the difference between like super healthy and diabetic. So it's just so variable from person to person. One way that you might uh, adjust for some of that is looking at the number of reticulocytes you have in your blood. Those are new blood cells. And if those are very low, then that means that your red blood cells are probably living a really long time. And if they're living a long time, then they have longer to get glycated so then you have an artificially higher hba1c so that's kind of if you're worried and again i mean i know that you wanted to maybe talk some more about carnivore and keto and 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 some of those things and in that population it certainly seems that their hba1c is quite high so or or it can go up over time so if you're worried about that something like looking at your reticular site count will let you know whether if you have really long-lived red blood cells then that's going to artificially elevate it and you just have to remember that what you're comparing yourself to is a sick population like we talked about more than 80 percent of um of people in the u.s have at least one of the markers of metabolic syndrome or you know marks on the way to metabolic syndrome so that means that more than 80 percent of people already have metabolic disease and that's who you're comparing yourself to. So it's really difficult to to say, you know, the the, the range on the, the the lab test is what that is, or that the lab gives you is the one that you want to aim for because the population you're comparing yourself to is already so sick. So speaking of that, if I'm uh, interested in preserving a healthy testosterone level uh, by decade, uh, am I looking at? these ranges of sorry-ass wussy boys because that's the norm. <laughs> and so what, do I want to be in the 90th percentile if I have high ambitions? And and same with uh, numerous other things on the blood report. Yeah, so it definitely uh, depends from test to test. So for uh, testosterone in particular, um, yes, testosterone has de- average testosterone has decreased over the last uh, few decades. Um, and that could be for multiple reasons, food quality, movement maybe uh uh like estrogens yeah plastics (laughs) um yeah maybe emfs um so for testosterone it's important to remember that like enough is important but more isn't necessarily better so i generally say that so say somebody in their 40s to 50s or older as long as you're over 500 you're probably in good shape uh, but the normal range will go down to some, usually down to like 250. But that's definitely, I would, that's definitely too low. Uh, so somebody 20s to 30s, maybe you want to be six, 700. And then, you know, you can naturally expect that to come down 100 points over the next like two or three decades, and that's fine. So, but, but usually above, above 500. Um, it's not fine if I want to, it's not fine if I want to throw down on 30 year olds, though, is it? Um, so not, it, in wanna... reality, it probably it probably doesn't make that much. It probably doesn't make that much difference. So enough is important, but more, more isn't better unless you're at a point where you're taking exogenous testosterone as a performance enhancing drug. And then yes, you will get to a point where more is better. But you'll you'll uh, there'll be a, a payoff in terms of say cardiovascular disease. Um, shutting down your prefrontal cortex so you're no longer good at uh, decision making really? um, all those kinds of things that's so, a side effect of uh, yeah. <clears throat> androgenic use yeah so testosterone generally if um if you're interested in it you should read behave by robert sapolsky but one of the one of the um 
uh, things that he talks about is how testosterone essentially modulates the function of the prefrontal cortex, which is there to help you make smart decisions, essentially. Um, and so it doesn't, it doesn't like having high testosterone doesn't make you make stupid decisions, but it makes you more likely to do the things that you are likely to do anyway. So if you're somebody who's normally very impulsive or normally has a tendency towards aggression, testosterone will make that, can make that worse. Uh, so you were talking serum levels when you said 500 yeah. to 250 is low. Yeah. Uh, is free testosterone more important, I hear, sometimes? Or? Yeah. So <laughs> I love the size. Yeah, so so, so not, not, not to me. Um, I think in general, total testosterone is enough. And things become, get really tricky because you do have, um, say, a, calculate, a free androgen index calculated, free testosterone calculated. That's based on things like your SHBG, your sex hormone binding globulin. But in general, in the people that I've worked with, SHBG is at the top end or above the normal range. Um, and so then that you know, may start to uh, proportionally lower your free testosterone. But in, these are people who are performing well, feel good, great libido. Um, and again, you know, the, the best way to decrease... You, so, and a lot of people think about uh, trying to decrease their SHBG because they want their free testosterone to be higher. And you can do things like, if you're zinc deficient, taking some zinc will help. Uh, boron will help. Some of the, if you're deficient in certain minerals, then, um, then that can certainly help. But beyond a certain point, the best way to lower your SHBG is to become obese and insulin resistant, oh. right? And so if you look at SHBG versus insulin sensitivity... It's just a it's a straight line. So the more insulin sensitive you are, the higher your SHBG. So I find people end up worrying about that a lot more than they need to. I think right. your total testosterone tells you more than enough. And you go check your low insulin level yeah. against high SHBG. Yeah. Um, I was alarmed, and and you and Chris helped talk me down there, and it was just pretty simple. Yeah. So we're, we're again so far out of the the normal realm that you have to kind of exactly get so, a little more deeper than uh, just going to the blood test and looking at which yeah. one's green and which one's yeah, red. You, you can't, sadly, you can't do that. And there's, you know, when, when you're then, this translates over to things like, uh, you know, advanced testing for cardiovascular disease risk. And the, the normal ranges uh, or the risk ranges are based on these, this same population of people, the most of, you know, the majority of whom are on their way towards metabolic disease. So, do these things still count in somebody who's active, metabolically healthy, sleeps well, eats well, moves, you know, frequently, you know, and we just don't know. And so, the, you know, we're trying to apply some of these things to a population of people that until essentially very recently, you know, didn't really exist. It just makes it really hard to figure <laughs> that stuff out. They didn't exist. Yeah. They were, just, they were just, Martians came down and stopped eating processed carbs for the first time in 9,000 yeah, years. You know, in the, in the, um, in the sort of the, the the modern modern environment, you know, people who are trying to um, create a more ancestral environment within you know the the modern constraints, that's it's a fairly new thing, you know. And as and but the, at the same time, all, we've had a dramatic increase in the amount of data uh, that is available for people that we can compare ourselves to that can help assess our risk. But the majority of that data is collected in sick people. <laughs> That's right. They're the most voluntary. Yeah. Yeah, sure, take my blood again today. I can't do anything about it. I'm chained to a hospital bed. 
Okay, I'm gonna have to call this the uh, the Doctor Tommy setting a straight show because uh-huh. you're 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 keeping us focused. That's what I love about you, man. <laughs> We're just getting getting some of this stuff locked down, and then one of the, one of the big items on my list I'm gonna hit you with is this carnivore thing. Yeah, and um, I like to quote the the classic movie Spinal Tap when the when the rock star David Saint Hubbin said, uh, "I believe virtually everything I read." And that makes me a more selective human. And I'm, I'm like, I'm kind of that guy myself where I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remain open-minded and uh, get away from dogmatic, uh, fixed, narrow beliefs that I'm so rigid that I'm, I'm unwilling to, uh, you know, to, to listen to an alternative point of view. So I listened to Dr. Paul Saldino yeah. go on about the carnivore diet uh, uh, several months ago. And, you know, it, it stuck in my head because, you know, the way he um, conveyed his argument was very measured and sensible. And looking at the other side and saying, well, you know, the, the counter argument to this is blank, blank, and the science shows this. And so it was really, it was, it's a nice presentation. It's a nice concept. Um, but it also feels like here's the next extreme uh, dietary uh, uh, binge where people are going to jump on the bandwagon like they've done with keto and completely bastardized it and misappropriated the concept of, of, of nutritional ketosis as it was intended when Mark Sisson and I wrote the book and the other keto experts are going in saying this is the benefits of it for your brain and your uh, seizure protection and now it's like bring a stick of butter to you with, uh, for, for lunch so you can get enough fat. Yeah. So. Um, let's, let's talk about a little bit of this carnivore premise, particularly the idea that we don't need plants and they might actually be bad, especially for certain people that are highly sensitive. Yeah. So, so that's, um, those aren't the same thing, right? The, 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 do we need plants versus are they bad for us? And I think that that's, a, that's, that's a big crux of what we still don't know about, about carnivore. And, you know, Paul, um, is, is a good friend of mine. We've hung out a lot. I really, I really like him. He's, you know, compared to some people in the carnival movement, he's very measured. He's very nose in- to tail, intelligent. He yeah, yeah. He, he actually, you know, thinks about uh, nutrient quality, nutrient density. Um, you know, how we're getting all the things that we might need, and and that is going to be a, probably a nose to tail approach. I completely agree with him. Um, and it, it can be absolutely magical. You know, but you know, Paul, a number of uh, uh, Georgia Ede, um, the guys. Um, who run, it used to be called Paleo Medicina. It's based in uh, Hungary where they use what they call a um, uh, paleolithic ketogenic diet. It's basically a high fat carnivore type diet for, for multiple different pathologies, autoimmune disease, some cancers. These guys are seeing. Oh, great. yeah. Uh, that, that's where Dr. Kate said if she, if she gets diagnosed with cancer tomorrow, she's headed to Hungary yeah, and, to get yeah, and, to go and, crazy treatment. And, but I mean, it's not really that crazy. The, the, the interesting thing is that they basically talk about or they, they show stepwise improvements in people who like, first they went paleo or they went keto, but they didn't really see benefits until basically they were eating a diet that was 10% protein and the rest animal fat and that's it. Is this cancer um, patients or what? What's yeah, their... cancer patients oh, and then mercy. some some severe autoimmune disease. Um, Where would you go if you got diagnosed with cancer tomorrow? Besides UW, maybe you'd be okay. Well, I'm, I mean, what I would, would you do? I would. That's a good question. It would probably depend on the type of cancer. I would. I would probably think about a diet like that again depending on the cancer there are some cancers where being ketosis doesn't seem to give any benefit may may be detrimental so it would depend um but and then again also depending on the the cancer i would pretend i would also consider chemotherapy depending on but I'd probably spend a long time reading papers to, to make that decision <laughs> um so yeah it depends that's, that's my favorite answer um but so so these guys are seeing great benefit 
in, in a wide range of diseases. And there's, there's a number of potential reasons for that. It could be that, yes, for some people, uh, fiber really is irritating to the gut for, for a, a number of potential reasons. It could be due to the microbiota or you know, other ways that you know, their immune system has, has changed because of their environmental exposures. And therefore, they just, they just can't tolerate these things anymore. Um, but the, the, the issue that I see is the question of whether this is optimal for everybody. And we don't really have any evidence to support that. So um, uh, recently, Paul, myself, and Rich Roll were on the Minimalist podcast. Um, like the, It opens with a carnivore, a vegan, and an omnivore walk into a podcast. That was essentially... Um, and it, it, was actually, it was actually really good. It was talking about minimalist diets. Um, you know, How can we try these different things to try and optimize our health? And when you think about somebody like Rich Roll, who is... you know staunchly advocates a whole foods plant-based diet just like um paul advocates a whole foods animal-based diet these guys are you know in themselves and in others are seeing great benefit like why would you even begin to argue with that like what you know if somebody is trying something and, and, it, and it works and they feel better and their health improves I, I don't see any any point in in really arguing um over like what is a human intended to eat um and sort of beyond that what I, what I really wonder is that what does it tell you about us as a species when we are starting to become incredibly sensitive to foods that we know our ancestors ate? We know our ancestors ate plants, right? Even if, even if it wasn't in, you know, in times of abundance, maybe they were purely carnivore, but at times in between, they were definitely eating plants and they were surviving well enough to uh, reproduce um to go out and and hunt to go out and forage like it was definitely not holding them back but now we're at a point where you have some um people who advocate carnivore or keto and they're like as soon as i have any carbohydrates as soon as i have any fiber my health falls apart and at the same time you have people like ray cronice who's a big plant-based guy he says as soon as i have salmon more than once a week my blood sugar starts to go up what does it tell you about this person that their blood sugar starts to increase when they have salmon more than once a week? That just doesn't make any sense. It tells me that there are other things that have not been fixed or there are other issues still going on. And if you think about a lot of people who are you know, well-known in the carnivore space, they're, software, they're overweight software engineers who spend all their time inside sat down, right? And then, yes, maybe to get your blood sugar under control, you have to really restrict your carbohydrates. But if you started to think about sleeping well, stress management, movement, you know, adding back some muscle mass, maybe socializing with people in real life, you know, maybe some of that stuff doesn't matter anymore. So I think the reason why these restrictive diets become almost necessary for some people is because we've built an environment that basically completely removes our ability to adapt or use different things from, from you know, from the diet you know we're, we're completely unable to tolerate you know new novel different things and we just have to restrict more and more and more i think that tells us more about the fact that we are no longer resilient as a species than it tells us about um that that we should be eating a certain that everybody should be eating a certain way does that make sense oh sure i mean it reminds me of the uh, asthma and allergy statistics where the, the only child that lives in an urban environment has much higher incidence than a kid on the farm, a kid who has a pet, uh, a kid who's the second or third child because the parents start to get tired of antibacterial wiping up everything. Um, and it makes perfect sense that the more exposure you have, the more you toughen up. Yeah. Right? And I think, I think we just... We, so first of all, we don't have those exp exposures that do make us tough, you know, do make us resilient. 
Um, and we've also, you know, there are all these things that we need to be healthy, you know, in our environment that we know that we no longer have, such as, you know, like light and dark at the right time of day, or um, you know, frequent movement, or you know, nutrient dense foods. You know, all those things we've talked about, we've engineered them out of the environment, and then you get to a point where, yeah, maybe you do need to be super restrictive in one area just to try and regain some health. But I don't think that tells you anything about the fact that like carnivore is the way that everybody should be eating. Oh, I I feel that's a way to reconcile this confusion when you're sitting there with a super healthy uh, vegan, like my friend Rip Esselstyn. We go back decades uh, racing on the professional triathlon circuit days uh, in, the, in the old days. And, you know, he's extremely healthy, prominent promoter of the plant-based lifestyle, the Engine 2 diet, and the great work his father's done at the Cleveland Clinic reversing heart disease with plant-based diet. But you're, you're talking about departing from the nasty standard American diet and then drawing drawing a circle on a page and, and pointing an arrow out in any direction. This could be carnivore, this could be vegan, and you're both going to have tremendous improvement because you stop going to nasty Ben and Jerry's ice cream with uh, industrial seed oils and processed sugar in there. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and a lot of, a, a lot of the, um, the, the proponents of these more, and I don't want to call them extreme diets because I don't really feel like for the person eating them, they're that extreme. So that's kind, it's kind of a... Specialized uh, and diets. And they're not, and they're not, they're not rest- like, they don't feel they're restrictive either. So, so none of those adjectives are, are particularly fair. But they often get there by being really sick to begin with, right? And so, so it, it, you've kind of, you have this person who was already sick because of all these other factors, and then they found something that helped them control it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the diet itself was the issue. Right, and they're they're so fervent because they believe deeply in their heart that they're going to change the world because they were on their deathbed and then they stopped eating meat and they they had an awakening. Uh, but yeah, we got to be got to be careful with uh, dispensing our. Um, I mean, your your personal experience and projecting that onto others. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and but the thing is, I'm 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 a huge supporter of both. Rich and Paul, you know these guys are really helping people reclaim their health. I have, but I have, I, I see value in both. I don't think that they're necessarily mutually exclusive. You just need to kind of, to me, it's just a, 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 a trying to put it into a bigger picture where it all still makes sense, despite the fact that people are eating completely diametrically uh, opposed diets, yet still seeing great benefit. So yeah, it's what they're not eating. Yeah, the, the, the best benefit of the carnivore <laughs> diet. If you let's make the top ten, mm-hmm. the best one is no shit food. Yeah. Let's make the top 10 of the vegan diet. The best one, number one is, well, I guess vegans are still maybe eating their Starbursts. So we'll, we'll, we'll say the plant-based. Yeah, whole right? food, that's why... Whole food plant-based. That's and, why sensible vegans say don't call it a vegan diet, call it a whole food plant-based diet because that tells you what's in it. I'd certainly agree with that. There we yeah. go. Yeah. Um, so let's say we're starting point. You and I are not suffering with um, huge autoimmune or inflammatory conditions. We just want to optimize and so forth. So... Let's say we have the freedom to go look for what foods are going to promote health more than anything else. And putting aside the enjoyment factor, and I have to have my broccoli, uh, otherwise I don't feel like the day is complete. Let's just say I'm, I'm a robot and I'm going, I'm going for the record. I want to live to 123. Yeah. Um, what kind of foods should I, should I necessarily go looking for? So I, th- I think that 
you probably you probably have an incredibly wide range, and and that's that's what makes it so so confusing. So and <laughs> when you're when you're talking about oh, and I, and I, wait, well, hold on, I got to tee off our um, our audio engineer Vuk because that was the quote of the <laughs> <laughs> that's a poor quote. We have a wide range, and that's what makes it so confusing. Yeah, and it, okay. the, it makes it it would be so much easier. If Are it you was... putting ice cream in there from Seattle if it's handmade? Fresh? Yes, you went to Salt and Straw, <laughs> didn't you? My wife would have told you you should have gone to Molly Moons, but maybe you can sample. Oh shoot, yeah. you know where we've been, Frankie right. and Joe. Yeah. Salt and Straw and Central District. I've hit three homemade ice cream stores in Seattle, so we got to go to Molly Moons. Got to go to Molly Moons. Okay, um, the quadruple. Yeah, um, and yes, that could that could certainly be a part of it. So, but you know, you know, may, you you focus on it's it's you just focus on food that looks like actual food, and it sounds like really trite, but that's essentially that's essentially where you start. Um, and so it looks like food that came from the thing that was in the ground or was the animal that was before it. Um, and if you do, if you do that for, for most people, that's, and you're, you're going to be at the point where there's uh, nutrients that, you know, it's nutrient dense, it's not calorie dense. And so all of those things that you need in terms of regulating appetite, in terms of getting all the nutrients you need, all of those things exist. Um, and yes, from there, you can certainly move one way more than the other and you know maybe you want to base that on how you feel maybe you want to base it on some blood tests in terms of some of the more some of the nutrients that that you might need more of um but when you the the there was this point that i wanted to make about the the carnivore diet specifically and again this is the difference between do we need plants versus are plants bad for us and do we need plants no probably we don't um and when you look at say um there are some there are some randomized controlled trials where they add meat into the diet, and actually, there are no detriments seen. There's only benefits seen. Um, interestingly, overeating meat doesn't seem to cause weight gain compared in the same way as overeating other, you know, more refined carbohydrate-based foods, which is just interesting. Again, it has not a huge number of studies, but the, but some studies that suggest that do exist. And then there are also studies that where they add plants to the diet, like vegetables to the diet. Not much really happens. Like, is it good? Is it bad? Doesn't really make any difference. Um, well, and, that that kind of takes a shot at the plant-based uh, uh, movement here. Yeah. So, so again, most... So, so, so there are absolutely... <laughs> That's brutal, man. There you, are, <laughs> you just punch the plant base in the stomach. doesn't really matter. And they're saying that is the essence of so, healthy living. So, yeah, so when you, when, you add, when you just add plants to the diet, there are randomized control trials that have done that, and they're just like pretty much equivocal. Yeah, whatever. But, so, but <laughs> Would you are, like some broccoli with your meal? Eh, yeah. Whatever, I don't know. And there's one interesting trial where they basically had people eat the same thing but in one of them, they rem- they they basically remove the the plant based antioxidants, and in those people, their like endogenous antioxidant state improved more than those with the plant based antioxidants. So actually, and that's interesting, isn't it? That suggests that if you're giving plant based extracts that have um, antioxidant properties, you know, then maybe they're not necessarily that beneficial because you know your body your body can and should make its own. But um, so if if you just add plants to the diet. Um, doesn't seem to make much difference. But there are plenty of studies using a, a whole foods plant-based diet where you do see benefit. But again, where's that benefit coming from? It's from the foods you're not eating all of a sudden rather than the foods that you are eating. Um, but like uh, you have to admit, the, the, the single 
most successful long-term weight loss trial, the Broad Study, Whole Foods Plant-Based Diet. They ate it for six months. They lost a huge amount of weight, and they kept it off for another six months after the trial finished. That's almost unheard of in any dietary trial. So again, you're teach- they taught people how to cook. They based the food on real whole food. Um, and these people lost a huge amount of weight, and they kept it off. So the plant-based community, you know, if I was a, if I was a plant-based guy, I would literally put that study up front, you know, more than anything, it's like, it's the best study that's been done on a plant-based diet. And I don't hear about it that much, but it's incredibly successful. But I think, you know, most of the success comes from what people aren't eating and teaching them to eat whole real foods. And they taught them how to cook. And once you have those skills, then I think, you know, whether more or less plants or more or less meat, you know, is probably, you know, you know, secondary. Wow. Dr. Kate Shanahan says the same thing, and she's working with private uh, employees now as her main uh, career out- outing and wants to teach them how to cook as her highest ambition and, yeah. and believes that she can make the most impact just teaching them how to enjoy and, and make, make good meals. And so possibly in that trial, if it was a carnivore trial, and someday someone's going to tap the six-month carnivore trial, and they taught them how to cook all this cool organ meats that they never knew how to cook before, you're going to have fantastic success and keep the weight off. Absolutely. I absolutely expect exactly the same thing. So yeah. it's that behavior change aspect rather than this uh, splitting hairs yeah. and championing one, one agent over the other. But I, I think that th- thing you briefly mentioned about the plants not necessarily or, or having a potential negative antioxidant benefit. It seems like Dr. Saladino is championing that really strongly that if you get rid of this stuff, you do better with internal antioxidant production. You'll replace the purported benefits of your acai bowl and your Jamba Juice <laughs> fresh squeeze. Is that the idea here? Yeah. So, so the, the idea is that most, um, most plant-based antioxidants, as you call them, are pro-oxidant, but what they do is they stimu- they actually use up your endogenous antioxidants, but they stimulate your body to make more. So that's the way that they that's, work. That's tripping it's, me out, man, because I didn't... I mean, let's slow that down, because people need to understand this. When you eat that blueberry, broccoli, kale, the antioxidant powerhouse superfood, as the poster says... These are actually have a pro. They have pro antioxidant properties. So they have pro oxidant properties. Pro oxidant. So yes, yeah, so they cause oxidative stress. But what that does <laughs> is it causes the cell to respond and produce more antioxidants. So, so it's, it's a, a hormetic. It's, it's a hormetic effect. So it's a complete misnomer yeah. to say that eat your kale salad. It's high in antioxidants. But what you really mean is it's going to trigger a high antioxidant cellular response in the body because it's a pro-oxidant. Yeah, it's going to stress your cells to increase their antioxidant so production. would that be like a cigarette and a, and a kale <laughs> salad? Can we... Yeah. Um, now so, Brad Kearns is jumping into the science realm. <laughs> Pete, you mofos better watch out out there because he just said cigarette versus kale salad, both so, pro-oxidants. Yeah, so I, I don't think that cigarettes have ever been shown to have that kind of benefit. Um, so, so, so this is where things get super interesting. In that, in that one trial where, where they did show that, it was in no way connected to any health outcomes, right? So we don't, you don't know if you just change that in a short period of time, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, we don't know. Um, there's also plenty of um, studies where if you take something like um, sulforaphane that extracted from cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, cabbage, broccoli seeds, um, you can give that in very high doses uh, to rats, you can give it in high doses to humans, and it doesn't seem to have a negative effect. Whereas, um, you know, somebody who was very anti-plant would say, oh, you know, it's toxic, it's a goitrogen, it's going to affect thyroid function, and it doesn't seem to. So, 
why is someone saying that? Are they citing a different study? Or no, what, it, how do we? It's a you know? it, it, it's a theor, it's a theoretical. It's a theor, So um, we know that the, the um, some of those things in cruciferous vegetables have the potential to interact uh, with thyroid function, their goitrogens. Uh, but when you give those isolated, so uh, sulforaphane directly activates NRF two. That's the pathway that gets activated by oxidative oxidative stress. Um, so that's what's being activated by a lot of plant based antioxidants. There are actually pro-oxidants. Um, the, the, <laughs> so brutal. So, man. so so it's kind of the, the way I think of it. So it's all the way I think of it is that. You know, essentially what doesn't kill you kill you makes you stronger, right? So exercise, if I measured your blood test straight after you did a heavy sprint workout, I'd think, Brad, that was a super bad idea. Like you look like you're in really bad shape, but your body adapts, it becomes stronger. The same thing happens with a lot of these plant-based antioxidants. Now, some people would say, yes, but there's no downside to exercise, but there is a potential downside to these, like they might be goitrogens, they might affect your thyroid function in 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 high doses. That doesn't seem to be the case, and we don't really have a way to resolve this. It's, at the moment, it's all like it's all still theory. Um, my again, my my question is: if you look at all the studies, and we know nutritional epidemiology is useless, we know that the the blue zones who tend to mainly eat plants, although they do eat meat, but they you know the majority of their calories come from plants. Uh, you know, they, they live a long time. It's probably because they move and they meditate and they socialize and, you know, they eat whole, like, local, locally grown food. It's maybe less what they're eating and all that other stuff, right? But even in all of those studies, all of them suggest that, you know, plants have potential benefits, right? There's no signal that um, any population that eats more plants is sicker. Right, so when somebody's saying, you know, in general, plants are toxic to humans, we should be carnivores. There is no the, like I, I want I want to see one study that suggests that on a, on a on a large scale, and I, and I I can't find any. So yes, carnivore can be incredibly beneficial to some people for a variety of reasons, but that's not you know. And there's evidence to suggest that adding more plants to the diet doesn't really do anything, and may make maybe worse for some people because of fiber or some other stuff. But that doesn't mean that in general plants are bad or that nobody should eat plants, right? There's, there's you just need to make sure you separate out which bits of evidence support what you're trying to do. Yeah, it reminds me of my. Uh, philosophy uh, one class in, in college is critical thinking where you have the you know if the street is wet uh, every time it rains the street is wet if the street is red if the street is wet does that mean it's raining and you say not necessarily it's so simple but then when you go down to you know week seven when i started to struggle and had to get a private tutor this stuff what you what you're just explaining is mind-blowing because if we apply what you just said push rewind people oh, we'll wait for a little and and listen to the the stream again if we apply that model to everything we're exposed to in everyday life when my mom sends me a text and says look at this it says red meat shortens lifespan headline story i think it was this week blasting the news everywhere then you got to take a deep breath and slow down and go okay here's what here oh they're counting you know nasty ass bacon sausage fast food hamburgers as red meat uh and and then you know again think critically and extract all these things and then we're pretty much left with um the, the Tommy Wood epitaph, I'm, I don't know, maybe, which, <laughs> yeah. you know, Dom D'Agostino, when I interviewed him about uh, keto uh, for an hour, he said, I don't know, so many times I finally started laughing. I'm like, dude, that seems to be your favorite answer. And he said, watch out for any scientist that doesn't say that a lot. He goes, because then these, and by the way, these are the guys that get on TV and spout uh, conventional, you know, they, they shape modern culture more than the real 
you know, the, the fine scientists that are open-minded and, and don't want to make conclusive things, but we're instead pulling and, and looking for these uh, black and white, shorten your telomeres, lengthen your telomeres, don't eat plants, you're, you're good to go, don't eat meat, you're good to go, and then we're left with a mess rather than uh, c- continually open-minded. But that one thing that, um, that, that makes some sense to me, I want to clarify or, or ask if this clarification is accurate, where Dr. Saladino says, yeah, there are hormetic stressors, right? Hormetic stressor means a brief positive natural stressor. If you haven't heard that word, right? It has a net positive benefit, but so is sprinting. So is me jumping in the cold tub. So is me going in the sauna, etc. So do I need another hormetic stressor with the broccoli and kale salad, or might I just sprint, go in the cold tub, go in the sauna, and fast rather than have the broccoli kale salad and get uh, all these wonderful benefits that were undisputed yeah the and and the answer is i don't know right and so and 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 this is the thing and what's um so what i think we can say based on the evidence that we have is that you don't need that right you may well benefit from it you may feel good doing it and that's great and then please you know please do do it does that mean it's essential for everybody to do no it doesn't um and 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 that's i think where we are that's where we are currently um so so if you know what what's important for anybody to do if they're trying to decipher some of this stuff is um track how you feel maybe track some basic blood tests there's a you know a number of things you can do to look at you know uh, your metabolic health maybe your nutrient status um, and then change something, and then again continue to track all of those things. So some people will start, you know, will feel much better when they add a huge salad into their into their diet every day for a variety of reasons. Some people will feel worse or because add of that. more calories, for example. Yeah, or add, or add more calories, or you know, add a steak. You know, and, and right. uh, there are I know I've worked with people who you know, previously on some kind of a, a carnivore diet, and they added back some plant based foods with some carbohydrates. And you know, they felt they felt better. Other people, strict carnivore, feel great all the time. Some people feel great. Um, you know, work with some particularly you know some well known athletes who do what really well on a vegan diet. Others did terribly, and they started to add back plant you know animal foods, and they felt good. Like that's just the way it is. You you have to be able to do some. You know, are any of these things one hundred percent necessary? No. Um, so then it becomes a part of your, you know, just a, a part of the, you know, f- you know, figuring out your own puzzle. You think diet is oversold in general amongst the, you know, listeners to the show? Not not oversold to the public in general. They need they best be paying more attention to it. Yeah. But in in the realm of people who are deep into this, you think it's the effects are oversold? I I think that once you are eating something that looks like a primal type diet, you've that's it. Right. right, that's, you, that's um, the vast majority that's required for most people. You named your best-selling book during the show. Did you realize that? <laughs> looks like food by Dr. Tommy yeah, Wood. Just eat if food looks that looks like, like food. That's that's literally that's literally. I, I I recently joined Instagram and I haven't done a lot yet, but I I posted a, a, a thing of me with the plant with the vegetables that I'm growing. Me and my wife are growing in my garden, and like I said, there there are many ways to to approach diet, but the most important thing is just to eat food that looks like food. And 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 most people, if that's what they do, then beyond that. Uh, you know, you probably don't need to. You probably don't need to worry about it anymore. There's probably other things that are much more important in terms of the your your sleep or your exercise or you know worrying less about your food so you can go and spend time with friends. You know, some of that becomes much more important. And people, who's saying this? But a 
very high profile leading researcher in this world. And he's telling you, don't worry about it so much. <laughs> so don't worry about it so much. Hopefully we'll minimize the email inbox of hair splitting nutritional questions and relax a little bit yeah. and, and get that bump in uh, healthy living. Dr. Tommy Wood, how do we find you on Instagram? So I'm at Dr. Tommy Wood on Instagram. No one had that. Nobody You're had that. You're a late comer to the, to yeah, the game. Yeah, no, I was, I was really happy. Incredible. Because I have some dude named Brad Kearns who's a, uh, apparently an accomplished snowboarder and he's got Brad Kearns sick air on YouTube. When people are looking for health advice, they got to go watch some guy flying off a snowboard jump. But at Dr. Tommy Wood at Instagram. Yeah, that's who you'll find me. Uh, I, I'm at uh, Dr. Ragnar, R-A-G-N-A-R on Twitter. So at, so at Dr. Ragnar right. was taken. I tried to have on Instagram too, so I had some like, but no, that what was taken. What is Ragnar? Ragnar is my middle name. Oh, um, I thought it was the the famous bike rider. Oh yeah, so well, there's the Ragnar. Well, there's there's also the Ragnar relay. Uh, oh, okay. Ragnarok is the, like the the final uh, uh, the final battle for Valhalla in Norse mythology. It's also my mm. gra- Ragnar is also my granddad's name. So lovely. Yeah. But so at Dr. Ragnar on Twitter, although I haven't spent much time on Twitter recently, at Dr. Tommy Wood on Instagram. Thank you for setting us straight, as always. Well, thanks for thanks for coming to visit me. Thanks for schlepping to my to my office. You deserve you deserve Pleasure. some some ice cream this afternoon. Absolutely. <laughs> da, 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 da. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive. We're we're talking about health, and you're telling me a funny story about. Your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table? It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder... <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too... It's so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my god! So she likes like the mayo on. Oh yeah, on. she so she loves those. So we love them as well. We have uh, we we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo. We eat the balsamic. We eat the the ranch. Um, the avocado oil we use all the time, and, and so you know that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish, Balance, Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. <laughs> and uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> it's my pleasure.